This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. Sending someone to Coventry means, in English idiom, refusing to speak to them, pretending they don't exist. The origins of the phrase are disputed, but it's clear that cutting someone off entirely from the social world is a particularly cruel punishment. Not all people who lack social contact have been deliberately ostracised as punishment, however. Some are just lonely. But that can be a devastating state nonetheless. There's an interesting question lurking here. Do we all have a right to social contact? Kimberly Brownlee believes we do. Kimberly Brownlee, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you for the invitation. The topic we're going to focus on is social deprivation. What is social deprivation? So I define it as lacking minimally adequate access to decent human contact. So someone who's put in solitary confinement in prison, or someone who's held in long-term medical quarantine, or even someone who's incidentally chronically acutely lonely, like the elderly person who's unable to get out of the house to seek social contact, they would be experiencing social deprivation. And do you have to actually feel deprived, or is it just that there's a basic need that, whether you realise it or not, you have as a human being? That's an interesting question. We are highly likely to feel the effects of being chronically acutely lonely. It isn't a state you can typically go through and not experience psychologically and physically. And the evidence from psychology is that we break down. We experience it the same way we experience pain, thirst, hunger, and fear. It triggers the fight or flight response. So it's an anxiety-inducing experience. It's linked to a whole host of health risks. There may be some exceptional human beings who could endure this in the same way that some people can fast for extended periods and manage to endure it. But the vast majority of us will experience social deprivation as an acutely, extremely negative experience. Which is presumably why solitary confinement is a form of torture. The evidence from psychology is that solitary confinement, it not only comes with the ordinary health risks of being chronically acutely lonely, it has additional negative effects on people's psychological and physical well-being. Some people begin to hallucinate, some people become self-abusive, some people even become semi-catatonic. You really do break down mentally and physically, and the anecdotal evidence confirms that. Journalists who've been held in isolation as prisoners of war, they say, my mind's gone blank, it's just a black horror. There was a a journalist, Shane Bauer, who ended up in in prison in Iran and he said that he craved human contact so badly that he hoped each morning he would be interrogated. He woke up wanting to be questioned just so he could talk to somebody. Now it's fairly clear that for most people at least, even the people who say they want to be alone, some social contact is a condition of a reasonable life. Does it follow that we have any right to social connection with other people? The evidence from psychology is that we are distinctive as a species. We are a deeply social species. We're highly dependent on people when we're children. Babies, children and teenagers, we have the longest period of abject dependency of any species. We also spend reportedly 80% of our waking hours in the company of other people and apparently prefer that time to the time we spend alone. Philosophers might be an exception to this, or academics in general. We not only flourish with other people, we need other people in order to lead a minimally decent human life. And when we're talking about human rights, that, for many theorists, is the reference point. What kinds of conditions have to be met for you to lead a minimally decent human life? So I argue that, yes, there is a human right against social deprivation, and it's a right 
in its own right, but it's also a right that has to be protected in order for many other human rights to be meaningly, meaningfully available to you. So if you in fact do break down mentally and physically, if you're socially deprived, then any other right that depends on the protection of your cognitive competence to be available to you needs this right to be protected for you to have that right. So the right to vote, the right to stand for office, the right to education, even the right to health to meet your basic needs with some degree of self-sufficiency, that depends on your minimal social needs being met. So what we're talking about here in terms of rights, is that a legal right, a human right, something else? The picture I've focused on to this point is, is that of a, a moral right, that this is a, a justified moral claim that you have as a, as a human being in virtue of having certain fundamental needs and interests. The standard of a minimally decent human life, that's a moral standard. What's the brute moral minimum in terms of how we can treat you as a person? It does have legal implications, but what's interesting is you won't find the human right against social deprivation in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights you'll find many rights that presume minimally adequate social inclusion. So there's a right to have an adequate standard of living to meet the needs of you and your family. And that presumes that you have access to a family. You have a right to participate in the cultural and scientific development of your community, presumption being that you are a member of a community. So this right is more basic. It's underlying those other rights. And we sort of tend to take for granted that we are minimally adequately socially included. If I've understood you correctly, what you're saying is that the need for social contact is so great in our species that depriving someone of it is almost as bad as depriving them of water. That's right. So in punishing people, we tend to deny them standing, we deny them respect, and we often deny them access to society. So when we put someone in solitary confinement, we render them abjectly dependent on other people to come to them to provide some social contact. But there are other things that we might do to people as punishments, which we don't do, or at least don't do anymore, because we think they're too beyond the pale. This is not something you could do to someone. You could not pump dirty air into someone's prison cell because punishment should be burdensome. You could not deny them water or food because punishment should be burdensome. So too, I'm arguing, you could not deny someone minimally adequate access to decent human contact. Now, we live in the age of social media. Do things like Facebook, Skype, email constitute social contact? <laughs> That's a tricky area because to some extent they provide surrogates. They do not, however, meet the needs in the paradigmatic sense. When those needs can't be met in other ways, so if someone is highly contagious, it may not be possible for people to be around them directly, and then we might have to rely on imperfect substitutes to ensure they have some kind of social contact. And indeed, people who are put in isolation, they'll often talk to the TV, talk to a plant, they'll sort of find a surrogate for social contact. But... There's so much that's missing. Direct human contact, you get a full context of the person you're engaging with. It also brings an element of persistence. So human connections, they're not one-off moments of contact. They're diachronic. They persist over time. You build up a joint narrative with someone. A perverse way to punish someone would be to provide them minimally adequate contact in terms of hours, but to provide it from a different person each time. So the way we actually provide healthcare service to people 
is actually quite disruptive of their social connections because it doesn't come from the same person. You don't develop a joint narrative. You don't show that you are trustworthy, that you can give trust to someone that you remember. You're forever starting over because it's a different person providing the contact. So there's sort of two pieces there. One is the value of it being direct, ideally it's direct contact, and also that it be in a form that is consistent with what it's like to experience an association, that it's not just contact that matters. It's, it has to be a story. Is this just a matter of some kind of contact or does it have to be contact above a a certain kind of threshold of engagement? What counts as decent contact will depend to some extent on the person, on the recipient. So a very young child will require contact that is quite rich. It could indeed be contact that involved attitudes of love and care and commitment that for a child to thrive they may need actually to be loved. For people who are mature adults, who are independent, who are broadly self-sufficient, decent contact may be a much more minimal standard. And it's probably more going to be opportunities to access human contact than the positive provision of contact. But even mature, healthy, self-sufficient adults will go through periods of dependency in their lives. When we face significant moments like giving birth, facing death, grieving for a loved one. These are moments of dependency where we do need contact and where decency will be a core feature of that. I can imagine that for a lot of adult listeners, some kind of sexual contact with other people of a reasonable quality is a condition of a good flourishing life, yet they don't feel they have a right to that contact. They're lucky if they manage to achieve it, but it's not a right. I think it's possible to lead a minimally decent human life without sexual intimacy. That said, for some people, that life is not a a choice. If you have a choice to lead such a life, it's consistent with minimally decent human existence. But if if it's forced upon you, if you're severely physically impaired and will not be able to access sexual intimacy unless it's positively provided, then it starts to drift closer to rights territory. It raises issues about competing rights, and I think that's a distinctive problem about social needs, that these are necessarily intersubjective. It's not like a material good. When we talk about freedom from poverty, we can talk about sending resources where they need to go, providing food, but that's not putting pressure on individual people's personal social resources. If we say you have social needs that are rights-based, then someone has to be providing the contact. The second really interesting piece about social resources is that that intersubjectivity means that when you ask someone to provide social contact to you, you're also offering it. It's a reciprocal type of resource. It may be reciprocal, but it may also be asymmetrical in terms of what each partner gets out of the activity. So for somebody who needs social contact and hasn't had it because there are things which are, let's say, unattractive about them in a a serious way, then whoever gives the social contact to that person will get presumably less out of the interaction than the person who receives the bonus of this. That's true, but I don't want to do an injustice to the contribution some people can make. So someone who requires physical care can provide a social contribution in allowing someone else to have the opportunity to care for them. So there was a program in the States where elderly people who required physical care were receiving it from people with Asperger's, and the people with Asperger's were learning to make a social contribution through that relationship. So there was an element of reciprocity. There is a traditional liberal position that Each of us should be free as adults to mix with whoever we want to. It's a matter of our own individual freedom. 
There's an idea that we get from John Stuart Mill that we have the right to choose the society that's most acceptable to us. That idea is patently false. First, because our society might not be most acceptable to the people we find most acceptable. They may not want to associate with us. The second thought is that that right depends on your basic associative interests being protected when you were a child. As a baby and a young child, you needed someone to privilege your associative needs. It doesn't make sense to talk about freedom of association for babies or young children. In order to assert later in life that you have freedom of association, priority must be given to your associative claims when you're younger. So we confront what we might call the what if everyone did that problem. What if everyone decided, I'm not caring for this baby, I'm not taking care of that elderly person, I'm asserting my million liberty not to associate. That will pose not only a lot of problems for the person no one wants to associate with, but for the collective. We will all do less well if we make this claim to not associate. Derek Parfit, in his book on what matters, talks about each we dilemmas. Sort of like the prisoner's dilemma, where you have an option to do what's best for you individually, or to try to do what's best for the group, and if you do what's best for you individually, and everyone else does what's best for them individually, we will do less well as a group than if we thought about the group. So I might say, I don't want to associate with anyone, if everyone else says, I don't want to associate with anyone either, we will all do less well. All the things that we value about social connection, families, teams, societies, organizations, intellectual development, love, care, kindness, that all depends on us thinking more about the associative interests of the group than my individual freedom not to associate. Does that mean that somebody who chooses to be a recluse is to some degree immoral? Yes, you do not have a general permission not to associate. We romanticize the rugged individualist, the loner, the Thoreau at Walden Pond, Robinson Crusoe. We respect and admire them. And I think the reason is that we hope that if we too were isolated, we could thrive. We also appreciate that being a social creature is stressful. So we need each other. We, we get a lot of benefit and protection from each other. We can't survive without each other, but we hope we could because we're also at each other's mercy. The whims of your family, the ideologies of your society, the shifts in perception, we are vulnerable as social creatures. And so I think we romanticize the life of the hermit because we hope that we too could survive and thrive if we were isolated, if we were rejected. Someone who chooses to be a hermit has a conditional permission to live that way, provided first that there's no one who has legitimate expectations of them that they maintain an association. So if you have a partner, if you have children, if you have people with whom you are associated, you do not have a moral permission simply to abandon them. Second, that person has a permission provided there aren't people in the world whom they could associate with and whose associative needs will go unmet if they don't. So the could is interesting. You're not in close proximity with everybody. There's a, a practical limit on the people that you could help socially. You're also limited in the number of people you can be intimate with. But if there are people near you that you could provide contact to who are otherwise going to have their basic needs go unmet, then you do not have a moral permission to go off and be a hermit.
If we value human communities, if we value the claims of those who are abjectly dependent on others to have their social needs met, then you have no moral permission, no blanket general moral permission to reject the human community, because we cannot have it be the case that everybody does that. But isn't the solution to that problem that we have a division of labour, as it were, we can each choose things in relation to our own particular set of desires, so it just so happens there's quite a diversity of human life, so that means there are different ways that people choose to live. It will be contingent. If not many people desire the hermetic life, then your moral permission is perhaps in good standing. If most people won't choose your lifestyle, it's not likely that there will be people whose needs will go unmet. You know, in our individualistic Western society, many people do favor a somewhat isolated, disconnected lifestyle. If that's the preference of most people, then it becomes morally problematic. So is it fair to characterize your view as something like John Donne's No Man is an Island? That's right, yes. We are inextricably bound up with each other as social creatures. We may not like it all the time, but we are interdependent. Kimberly Brownlee, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is lovely. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.